This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Bonn Climate Change Conference was two weeks of intense work to make progress on important technical issues and prepare decisions for adoption at the UN Climate Change Conference or COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in November. So what issues were discussed and were there any fruitful outcomes, especially from the Global South lens? So today I'm catching up with Minakshi Raman. She's the president of Sahabat Alam Malaysia and head of programs at the Third World Network to discuss outcomes from the recently concluded Talks. Welcome, Mina. How are you today? I'm fine, Juliet. Um, a little bit sleepy, and I don't know just came back um, a few days ago. So, yes, um, jet lag, I suppose, at this age. Okay, so you were in Germany, of course. And um, uh, what was the setting like? You know, I mean, with so many different sort of, you know, we've got the global energy crisis happening. We've got food shortages. There's that war in Ukraine. You know, all sort of like, you know, in the background of the talks. Did, did the setting seem sort of different? Was there more urgency, perhaps? Well, actually, um, Juliet, we expected that um, I, that you know the background of all the that you mentioned in terms of the Ukraine war and the energy crisis um, would have actually um, triggered a sense of urgency, particularly on the part of the developed world. Mm. But unfortunately, what we saw was actually you know more rhetoric than actually um, real acknowledgement of the crisis at, the, at this stage. And, and I can explain why. Because even as the talks were going on and the energy crisis um, was actually really happening, um, we saw the rich world going out and expanding their oil um, and fossil fuel production and expansion. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, we also heard that Joe Biden was going to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates asking them to pump more oil And uh, so, I mean, this was the reality in the outside. But in the inside, there was a lot of talk about, oh, how Glasgow, um, the Glasgow Climate Pact, parties agreed that, you know, we have to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degree centigrade compared to pre-industrial levels. So there was a lot of rhetoric about that, but there was a complete mismatch between the action outside in terms of the real world the real world and and what was happening on the ground and actually what was going on in the talk. So while there was this, um, also there was the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they had released their three reports and the most recent report was on the mitigation work program and, you know, over the last, I mean, you have also covered it, how the urgency um, was really uh, clear and that the less um, emissions that, I mean, mitigation action that we do now, the more we will have to do in terms of adaptation. And in fact, as we had already pointed out before, the, the limits to adaptation, I mean, there are, there are constraints already happening into how much countries can actually do in terms of adaptation because we are already entering into the real world of loss and damage yeah. in terms of... Um, the climate impacts, the, the, the extreme weather events, the disasters, the um, increasing, um, you know, rise of sea levels and in the impending catastrophe and so on. So all that was the real science and all that was the urgency. But as I said, what the leaders were doing outside in terms of mitigation or actually emission reductions by the ritual did not match with the 
negotiators who were there in the Bonn conference saying, oh, you know, this is a, a, a urgent and we all have to take action. So that was rather worrying. And also, I think on the issue of loss and damage, which I, um, you know, was the one of the biggest issues in Bonn, and rightly so, mm. because uh, as you know, in Glasgow, um, there was a big push by the developing world for a loss and damage finance facility yep. that never materialized in Glasgow because the United States in particular was opposed to any financing facility. And what came out of Glasgow then was only this um, agreement to talk about loss and damage and they called it loss and damage dialogue. So it was a Glasgow dialogue on loss and damage. And it was about looking at talking about funding arrangements, but it was really not about a finance facility. So okay. when some of the um, developing countries, actually it started by the like-minded developing countries who wanted the loss and damage agenda on the agenda, which means actually it has to be discussed as an agenda item mm. of the subsidiary bodies, but this was refused by the developed countries. They did not want this to be discussed. They said, look, we agreed in Glasgow to talk about the Glasgow Dialogue on Loss and Damage. And there is an event which is taking place in, in Bonn, organized by the subsidiary bodies, which is about workshops and, and the IPCC presentation and so on. But there was no political space to discuss the Glasgow Dialogue, which means all the workshops and all the interventions that were made, parties, the developing world actually wanted a political space to discuss this, meaning how do you capture this? Sure. Um, how do you actually take into account, um, you know, what we have learned? And how do you begin to talk about loss and damage finance in a very concrete way? Now, the developed world did not agree. So, you know, again, um, there it was no agenda at, at this meeting. And the G77 and China, which is the developing country grouping, they actually have written a letter to the UNFCCC Secretariat. And they said that we want this agenda item included at COP27. Okay. So this issue will again come up in COP27, and it is going to be a political hot potato as again. Mm -hmm. So while the science is showing us, IPCC is showing us that so much is already happening in terms of loss and damage, uh, you know, countries, particularly the small island states, or even in our neighboring countries around, around uh, like Philippines, once you hit by a cyclone, you know, commun thousands of communities around the coastline, um, entire economies wiped out, yeah. you know, and yet there's a reluctance to talk about real money for loss and damage um, in this very, um, you know, dedicated way. And so that was incredibly disappointing. I want to ask about that fact that wealthy nations can actually push back and get to leave things off the agenda. I mean, that is something that can happen. I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, for people who are not familiar with how these talks work, right? how does that actually work? Well, according to the rules of procedure in the UNFCC, uh, which is followed by the subsidiary bodies, mm. decision making is by consensus. I see. So all you need is um, one country to object. Okay. But but I just want to put that in context. In 2016, when Bolivia objected, the whole the the um, actually they the, the decision at that time. I mean, 
the Mexican presidency at that time, who was the foreign minister of Mexico, who was then Patricia Espinoza, oh. was who who was then in in Bonn. She was the she was she was the executive secretary of the NFCC. So when she was foreign minister and she was presiding over the um, what you call it, uh, actually not 2016. I'm sorry, 2010 in Cancun when Bolivia objected. Um, she gaveled the decision despite the Bolivian objection. She said that, you know, um, unanimity is not consensus. Oh. So you can go ahead and, and, and ignore the objection of Bolivia. But if the United States of America objects, no, 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 you cannot, uh, you know, take any decision. So this is how um, decision making is. The powers of the rich, particularly the U.S., um, is is overwhelming um, in the decision making process. So, so when the US says no, it's no. Okay, and that's so. That's basically what happened here as well, lah. In, in terms of uh, loss and damage being left off the agenda. Yeah, it wasn't just the US in that case. It was also other developing um, developed countries as well, including the European Union, um, Norway, Australia, and others who did not want this agenda item okay. out there. So we will we will see the fireworks happen. At COP twenty six, okay. uh, twenty seven, sorry, COP twenty seven, in Sharm El Sheikh, in um, in Egypt, in Egypt. Okay, and that's happening in November, of course. Um, and you know, can that happen again? Can that be you know left off the agenda again, as such? It will be. There will be an agenda fight again. It's, okay. it's high, fight, very, very, very um, clear that it will happen. So whether this time around the the rich countries will um, you know allow that. Or, I mean, continue to oppose um, is an open question. So I think the world will have to watch how the United States behaves because it was a super red line for the United States in Glasgow. Super red line means uh, the issue of the loss and damage finance facility um, is a red line. They will, will can never agree to it. So how they will behave in Egypt is something that we will need to watch. Now, civil society... Um, NGOs and civil society in the bond talks, there was a lot of actions outside. Um, there would be huge protests and, and daily chanting um, and actions calling on um, the developed world to progress on loss and damage um, finance, mm. saying that there needs to be a finance facility. Um, but and, and this is likely to grow between now, between um, in the coming months, uh, we hope to see a lot more action in the United States uh, from civil society and movements on the ground in the U.S., pushing this very high on the agenda. And whether the U.S. will listen to, to you know, its own people, um, you know, will be something that we will have to see. Okay. All right. Um, let's just go for one quick break. Now, when we come back, let's talk about some of the other outcomes uh, from the Bond Climate Talks. I'm speaking today to Minakshi Raman. She's the president of Sahabat Ala Malaysia. She's also the head of programs at Third World Network. She's giving us updates from the recently concluded Bond Climate Talks. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today all the way from Penang is Minakshi Raman. She's the president of Sahaba Ala Malaysia. She's also the head of programs at the Third World Network. 
Mina was recently in Bonn over in Germany to uh, to attend the climate talks there. This is ahead of the UN Climate Change or COP27 in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in November. So we're talking about the issues that were discussed and, uh, you know, what actually wasn't discussed, what was left off the agenda. So, um, Mina, I guess, you know, from what I was reading, um, there was a lot of things coming from folks like yourself, you know, who were left frustrated by a lot of things that were not addressed. Um, so you spoke about loss and damage just now. Um, I also uh, read that, you know, there was a, there was this eternal challenge, I suppose it's called the eternal challenge, on providing money to address climate change, right? So climate financing, or specifically maybe persuading the developed nations to do so. Uh, was that a key feature in the bond talks as well? Uh, yes, I think one of the overriding tensions we actually saw was whenever the issue of climate finance was raised, it became a huge uh, point of contention um, between the, the developed and the developing world. Just let me give you an example. Um, in Glasgow, one of the small achievements that happened on the part of developing countries was the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage. Okay. Um, this network is supposed to be a technical assistance network. The idea here, um, it was not about a finance facility. Rather, it was a technical assistance facility. And in Bonn, the, the, what they were supposed to do was actually to uh, give teeth to this facility, okay. um, to this network. So operationalize in the um, diplomatic parlance, it's called operationalize, the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage. So what this, the big discussion here was, um, where should the network be based? Should it be under the UNFCCC or should it be outside of the UNFCC? Now, what the developed world was saying is, look, we have other UN agencies who have been dealing with um, you know, loss and damage for the longest time, and they have experience, like the uh, Sendai framework on climate change, like the Red Cross, uh, like uh, you, you other UN agencies and disaster relief and so on, humanitarian assistance. So we really don't need the UNFCCC to deal with this. So what developing countries were saying, no, 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 the Santiago network should be under the UNFCCC, we want an advisory body, which is actually having oversight of this network. And we want technical assistance to be provided to developing countries in real time. Mm. And we want financial arrangements for the technical assistance body. So it was funding arrangements for the technical assistance. Okay. Now, this, this, the advisory body was a huge contention. The developed world said, no, we don't want an advisory body. They said, we don't want to talk about funding arrangements because what they had in mind was actually that it can be done by outside agencies and those agencies are already being financed. So we don't need to talk about another institution which will replicate the work outside there. So all, all they said was, we, we, you know, perhaps the UNFCCC can be more playing a coordination role rather than having a much more, um, you know, um, um, oversight role and actually... Uh, being much more um, responsive to the needs of developing countries. So, so you can imagine that that was a big fight. And this will also be, has been kicked down the, um, the can has been kicked down the road to Shamal Sheikh also. Okay. So this issue of the advisory body, the funding arrangement for technical assistance, all this is down to Shamal Sheikh. The other um, issue was actually adaptation. Mm. Now, what was really important in the Paris Agreement was the global goal on adaptation. Now, we everybody, I mean, most people know about the temperature goal, the limiting, the 
uh, temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C. And that's the temperature goal that parties agreed to in Paris. What the, de uh, the developing countries had pushed under the Paris Agreement was also what's called the global goal on adaptation. Because what they had said was, it's not, not enough just to look at the temperature uh, goal, but we have to look at how parties, or, or when we say parties, how governments around the world have been collectively um, ensuring that adaptation is, real adaptation has actually been happening on the ground. Okay. Adaptation means you respond to, like for instance, just to give you an example, um, if you have a drought and you're predicting also already much drought and that has an impact on agriculture, can you have agriculture, ad, uh, ad, you know, adapt, I mean, can we have adaptation in the way that to ensure that agriculture doesn't suffer anymore? So can you have adaptation action in relation to agriculture? Another example is that for coastline communities, can you make sure that they have more resilience um, and, you know, or they have early warning systems um, and so on, you know, to, to adapt to the impacts of climate change. Sure. So, so adaptation is very important and more so now, as the IPCC Working Group 2 pointed out, because there's so little that, that the world has been doing on limiting uh, greenhouse gas emissions, that the amount of adaptation we need to do is much more. The financing for adaptation is much, much more, and that we need to actually respond in a much more dramatic way. Now, the um, and adaptation has always been an often issue. The developed world focuses on mitigation quite a bit. Like even if you look at climate finance, 80% of whatever finance goes to mitigation. Mm -hmm. Very little, mitigation means emission reductions, very little actually goes to adaptation. Sure. And uh, so that, that was a very high priority. So when developing countries were saying that we need to ensure that we have a global goal which reflects all this, um, the progress was actually uh, not very advanced. There was actually a failure to agree on a text. Um, and, and, uh, but then what, what they did was again to kick the can down the road to Egypt. They said, okay, we will put everything in brackets meaning there's no consensus, but we capture whatever agreement or lack of agreement was in uh, the, from the bond session so that we will go to Sharm al-Sheikh to start on, the, on whatever work that was done. So another can down the road. So that, that's, that's really something that will be a big deal for developing countries. The other issue was actually climate finance. I mean, climate finance will be more important um, the COP27, okay. because much of the finance agenda is actually on the agenda of the conference of parties, not under the subsidiary bodies. Okay. But what happened at the subsidiary bodies was actually the issue about for adaptation fund. In Bonn, they talked about the adaptation fund. A big issue was the membership of the adaptation fund. Um, just to, to for your listeners, the adaptation fund, which is actually a very critical fund, was set up under the Kyoto Protocol. Okay. It was not under the convention. It was under, a, under the Kyoto Protocol. And the United States is not a party to the Kyoto Protocol. And Canada also walked out of the Kyoto Protocol. So they are not a party. So one issue was actually uh, the governance of the adaptation fund, meaning the, the, um, you know, whether the adaptation fund should serve the Paris Agreement. It was already agreed that it served the Paris Agreement. But the membership of the board of the adaptation fund became an issue. 
because developed countries like US and Canada and all wanted to be on the board. Of and the adaptation fund is actually much more democratic. For the developing countries, it's much more, the, the access to the adaptation money is much more easy. So they wanted the adaptation fund to remain much, um, you know, in terms of decision making, uh, more democratic and much more uh, in the hands of developing countries. Now, this was, of course, something not what the developed countries want, because when they put the money, they want to ensure that they have a huge say on the money. Right. So this was one other issue that, that again, would surface. Um, and then there was this issue about the new collective quantified goal on finance. Now, this is a mouthful, mm -hmm. but it's very important because um, if you recall, um, there is this 100 billion per year by 2020 that or US dollars per year by 2020 that we all heard about in Paris, yes. right? Yes. Now, that goal was actually set in 2010. And then developed countries never delivered on it. They keep promising and promising. So when they came to Paris, they said, okay, we will promise to deliver. And then they extended it to 2025. In Glasgow, they said, we will also continue to promise to deliver. And they still keep promising to deliver. Now, the new collective goal was actually supposed to be the post-2025 target. That means for the implementation of obligations under the Paris Agreement, there is a new goal that needs to be decided. And that decision finally will have to happen by 2024. So they have to come up with a number which is based on the needs of developing countries. Now, the, the, this, this, this program to discuss the new collective goal um, already started this year. Okay. And um, the first, first meeting was already in South Africa. So when they came to Bonn, that was the second meeting to discuss. What was very clear to us, particularly for the developing world, is that the rich world does not want to talk about a number. They want to talk about everything but the number. So, you know, as I always say, we are prepared to talk about the mother, the father, the dog, the pet, the cat, you know, but they are not prepared to talk about the number. In fact, um, I took part in the meeting by uh, remote means in, in South Africa, and uh, I heard things like, oh, it's too early to agree on a number. We only have to agree in 2024. Why do we need to talk about it now? But as the developing countries already pointed out, there is a needs determination report. There is a report now prepared under the UNFCCC, which looks at all the, what, what is called the nationally determined contributions of uh, developing countries, which yeah. means under the Paris Agreement, when, part, when, when the developing countries agreed to join, everybody had to make a contribution on what they would do in terms of climate action. That's called the nationally determined contributions. Yeah. So the needs sense. determination report already showed and, and what the developing countries' needs were. And, they already, and in that needs determination report, they only costed 30%. I mean, the, the figures indicated by developing countries were only 30% of that needs. And from that 30% of the needs, the needs was already in the range of 5 trillion to 11 trillion, um, uh, what you call it, US dollars US dollar. needed yeah. um, to implement the current NDCs, the current climate actions, which would take us to 2030. Mm. So we know what the needs are and, and the needs are, the, th those needs are just a fraction of what the real needs are. If you take into account 
um, the, need, the climate actions on mitigation, the climate actions on adaptation, and the loss and damage finance is much, much more than the 5 to 11 trillion that is there in the NDCs. So the developed world is very reluctant to talk about a number, even to use this as a basis to talk about the number now. And what they are already trying to say is that the money is, should not only come from the developed world, that the money should come from all sources, including all countries. So this is actually renegotiating the Paris Agreement. Of course, they talk about the money from the private sector, the money from the multilateral development banks, the money from everybody else. But what the developing countries are saying is that while we acknowledge that there's a lot of other finance and finance landscapes out, finance landscape out there, but it's for the developed world to mobilize them. Because mm -hmm. that's what was agreed to in Paris. Okay. So, so it's the responsibility of the developed world to provide and to mobilize climate finance. And why? This is because of the historical responsibility for the emissions. Mm -hmm. So that's what climate finance is about. And so the other issue is about the definition of climate finance. How do you define climate finance? Do you define loans as climate finance? I mean, when I have to pay back, when the developing countries have to take a loan and pay back, is that climate finance or when you take uh, insurance you know they talk about insurance for climate risk and so on when you pay premiums on on the insurance is that climate finance so there's a big discussion that is also uh, a political discussion about what do you count as climate finance and so that is another that that will continue to to fight so on the whole you i mean to 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 cut the long story short it's very, very difficult, uh, Juliet. We know the challenges, and, and particularly for developing countries, and that was something that came up very vividly in Bonn. Many developing countries talked about how they are undergoing um, you know, a, a severe debt crisis. Okay. I mean, look at what has happened in Sri Lanka. Yep. You know, just yep. as an example, of course, there's mismanagement and so on. But look at our own country, where, where we are trying to cope with a massive crisis in terms of prices and inflation and so on. That is rising everywhere, even in our own country. So the more that there is rising debt, and the more that we have to do in terms of responding to, to the immediate, uh, you know, whether it is responses to the energy crisis, responses to inflation, responses to food and, and so on, the climate action will fall off the radar. Yeah. So, and you can't expect developing countries to take on more loans because more loans will mean more debt. And so this is a very serious issue, including the COVID response. Mm. You know, when the developed countries had to, you know, did the COVID response, immediately money was invented. They could find the money. They could print the billions that the billions that was needed. But when, when it comes to climate finance, there is no political will to actually do what, what's needed. So there was this rising and growing frustration that, you know, the reality is one thing, the rhetoric is another. So constant mismatch, you know, oh, you know, you still hear the developed world talk about um, we have to limit temperature rise, we have to you know, rah, 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 but there's a lot of blah, blah, blah. 
so unfortunate. It's, and, and, and for many of us, it's really, I mean, never we go, it's like a broken record. Yeah. And um, and there is there is I mean I and and my own assessment and actually some of us in third world network have been looking at other processes as well, whether the WHO and and you know the WTO, um, even in responding to the pandemic, you know, and the, remember there was this big discussion about um, uh, the waiver of the intellectual property, the monopoly, you know, trips waiver, yeah. um, and how do we have to, how we actually have to relax these rules. And you find that the, the reluctance is terrible on the part of the developed world. So you f- we find that there, we find it in um, um, even in the response to the pandemic, we find it in the even in the con- Convention on Biological Diversity. There was a meeting in Nairobi which just concluded. Same frustration because developing countries were saying, given all the crises that we are going through, if we are to, to have more protection of our natural resources and biodiversity, we need a biodiversity fund and we need much more mobilization of resources, but no go again from the developed world. So how are we in this failing multilateral system where you find that there is no political will for real international solidarity and not just solidarity in, in terms of the climate, it is about the convention and the Paris Agreement, we are, which are internationally binding treaties. Mm-hmm. So it's not about just a moral obligation, it's a legal obligation. And so even to respond to that in terms of real means of implementation, meaning real finance, real technology transfer, real capacity building, real response to adaptation, real response to loss and damage, and even real emissions reductions in the developed world, that's not happening. So, which brings me to the mitigation discussion. Okay, let's just. You I just had a question. I yeah. do. Let's just go for one more quick break, uh, Mina, and then we will come back. Let's talk about that mitigation. I'm speaking today to Minakshi Raman, President of Sahaba Ala Malaysia and Head of Programs at Third World Network. She's helping us break down what happened at the Bonn Climate Talks. Uh, what I'm getting from you, Mina, is that it sounds like uh, as that phrase that you keep using, the can just kept being kicked further down the road, right? So, yeah, well, we'll continue that, our discussion after this one more quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.5. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today is Minakshi Raman. She's the president of Sahabat Alam Malaysia. She's the head of programs at the Third World Network. She's giving us updates from the Bonn Climate Talks, which was just recently concluded uh, Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago over in Germany, of course. So, uh, yeah, Mina, it doesn't sound like there was a lot of uh, positive things coming out of there. Um, I'm just, you know, it sounds actually, you know, on all our conversations, it sounds like the same sort of answers you're giving me. Like there was a lot of pushback from the developed nations. Nothing was really sort of um, agreed upon and then yeah we'll just talk about it at another conference what keeps you going you know when you (laughs) to keep attending these talks you know year after year you know month after month gosh I think Juliet I think what we need to recognize is that like I said these are international commitments Um, and so these are the only way in which we can hold the countries accountable Um, not just the developed world but also developing countries like even our own countries Mm. we say we make a commitment to climate i mean the international commitment also requires us to be accountable for what we promised and so with no other leverage that we have this is the only leverage that we have um, in terms of using the legal commitments of these treaties to hold governments to account 
And this is why uh, we keep going. We as civil society, we bother to go. And this is where we denounce governments who are promise one thing and don't keep to their commitments. Mm -hmm. This is where we need to expose the dubiousness. And this is where we need to you know, speak truth to power, as we say. Um, if we are not there, governments get away without any accountability. For sure. So even with the little uh, that they do, and even, I mean, I think a more important question is why do governments keep going <laughs> I mean, from the developing world? You know, and many ask that question. Because we keep coming and we keep coming, particularly, you know, like the small islands who come from so far away, like Samoa and uh, Vanuatu and Kiribati and the three days they take to come to a conference like this and with all the difficulties and then to only hear that nothing is on the table, very little on the table as the sea level keeps rising, as the climate impacts are being faced, incredibly frustrating. And for us as civil society, we go there because we see the, the impacts on our people, whether it is the floods, I mean, in Malaysia, the witnessing of the floods, whether how our fisher folk are suffering, how our farmers are suffering, how our ordinary urban and rural citizens are suffering, um, how in the Muda area, if there is no water, how the farmers are not able to plant um, rice and so on. So we see that we are connected and this is real. So if we, we can easily bury our head in the ground and say, I don't want to forget about this, but it comes to you. Tomorrow you're hit by a cyclone, you're hit by a flood, you're hit by a water crisis, it's here. Mm -hmm. So how do you hold governments to account? So that's why we keep going. And, and I think because it's a global problem, it's not a national problem. I mean, if it was just a national problem with Malaysia, we could, we, we could just bother about it in this country. But because the emissions as a whole um, are global, so this is why if, if collectively governments don't do enough, then the impacts that we are facing, and particularly the current impacts are due to historical emissions, much of it. Yeah. So, so that's why we keep going, because otherwise um, there is no world. And maybe the final thing I would say on this point, what keeps us going is the inspiration is that there are a lot of young people out there who are very worried about their future mm -hmm. and they protest and they go on the streets and, and they are, um, you know, um, there are a lot of movements who, who, who are protesting daily. Um, you know, and in big numbers, like even in the G7 at the moment, there are some protests which are happening. And we see some changes in governments around the world. For instance, Colombia, um, which just had a left-leaning, for the first time, a left-leaning uh, president, historic. And his vice president was actually a, an environmental activist mm -hmm. uh, um, who is a black woman, an Afro-Colombian. And um, and 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 um, what the, um, the the Petro, the new president, had been talking about is how to have move Colombia away from hydrocarbons. Okay. I mean, can you imagine a developing country which is dependent on hydrocarbons talking about a future without fossil fuels? Mm -hmm. Very far-sighted and very inspiring. So some of these, um, you know, governments are now inspiring action, um, and and many many developing countries. And I was very happy to see that in Bonn, um, under what's called the mitigation work program. Because in Glasgow, there was this talk about a mitigation work program for emissions reductions. So what was interesting there was about the discussion around just 
transition. Okay. Very important concept, particularly for developing countries. So many of uh, the countries were talking about, yes, acknowledging that we need to phase out of fossil fuels. and uh, But how do we do that in a way that is just? Meaning, if you have, like say even in this own country, and I've talked about this many times, 20% of our national budget comes from Petronas and Petronas oil revenues. Now, we can't be depending on Petronas uh, forever. So we need to have a transition away, the energy transition to a much more faster pace for a renewable energy transition, which doesn't depend on fossil fuels. So how do you do that? That will require climate finance. How do you ensure that those who are dependent on fossil fuels, like uh, in many countries who are in the coal industry, who are um, in the um, oil extraction industry, particularly in the developed world, how do you make sure that if they are displaced, they have alternative jobs? Yeah. So this is what the just transition means. And many of us are also engaging with the international trade union movements, many of the movements from the developing world. Um, I had an interesting conversation with the international trade union movement, who are very active now in the climate negotiations because they see that if you take away jobs from the fossil fuel economy, how do you replace it with sustainable jobs in the non-fossil side? So these are all very, very important um, trends. So it was interesting to see developing countries talk a lot about just transition. Um, and so that, that's important. I wanted to ask something actually about um, uh, something that the U.S. actually particularly fought for, and that was language about major emitters uh, in order to see the likes of China take on greater responsibility before 2030, right, uh, for cutting greenhouse gases. But of course, the like-minded developing, like-minded group of developing countries, which includes China, India, uh, Saudi Arabia, they strongly oppose this. What was happening there? You see, the Paris in Paris, as we as the negotiations in Paris went on and the final Paris Agreement came into be, one of the biggest fights was about um, the notion of developed developing countries. Um, even in the run up to Paris, already developed world, particularly the U.S. and others, wanted to introduce the notion of major emitters, um, and they wanted to catch China and India in particular. Yeah, of course, mainly China. Because it's true that if you take the absolute emissions of China and India, by virtue of their population size, their emissions are very large. In fact, um, uh, you know, currently they're, they're, if you, they, are, they are, if you look at absolute emissions, quite big emitters. But if you take into account um, per capita emissions, per capita means if you go by, by the population size, there, and you compare the per capita emission of China with that of the United States, the United States is something like about um, 20 uh, or, or 18 to 20 uh, tons of CO2, for instance, mm -hmm. compared to China, which is probably in the range of four or five or, or, or seven or eight. You know, I mean, it's still vast, sure. the difference. So it's not fair to take um, population size because... The, the reason why China is large is because of its population. You can't blame the population. So this is why there is this notion of a fair share of the carbon budget. In fact, the like-minded developing countries uh, and China and India and others pushed for this discussion. And they have been pushing this even in Paris about looking at the carbon budget. Because if you take a temperature goal, whether it's a 2-degree goal or a 1.5-degree centigrade goal, 
there is an, a certain amount of carbon budget under that uh, temperature target. And so you have to also look at historical emissions. So if you take the historical emissions into account and the cumulative emissions, and you see that much of that carbon space has been used up by the developed world because they industrialized very rapidly. If you remember colonial, our colonial history and industrial times and all that, they used up much of that and they had unfettered emissions, you know, mm -hmm. uh, pumping of um, emissions into the atmosphere and they became rich. Yeah. Now, so what the developing world was saying is that we have to take that fair shares approach in looking at that. And what is remaining, there's about 500 gigatons of carbon space left to limit temperature rise to below 1.5. That carbon budget should be for developing countries, not for the developed world. And so what they were saying is that you need to go to real zero. In fact, you have to go to net zero, negative zero for the developed world. But this is a conversation that the rich world, particularly the United States, will not have. But they wanted to introduce this notion of major emitters. Because they say we need to talk about absolute emissions. We don't want to talk about per capita emissions. We don't talk about historical emissions. Mm. And so this is where this, this big fight. And so if we do not understand the politics of this, then we fall into the trap of blaming China and India. And it's not a fair world. And that's really unfair. So when, when, when the US wanted and others wanted to introduce the major emitters idea, um, China in particular, together with the like-minded, came out very strongly and said, don't renegotiate Paris. We settled in Paris that there is a developed world and there's a developing world. We cannot um, renegotiate this now because the Glasgow Climate uh, Pact is not about renegotiation. It's on the understanding that you implement the Paris Agreement. So what they said very clearly was, if you want to renegotiate, get another mandate. That means get another mandate for another treaty, oh. but not under the Paris Agreement and the Convention. Okay. So, so they, made, they, were, they were very bold in terms of looking at the legality of the issue. So that was why it was, it was quite contentious. And the other thing I want to also say is that when the developed world introduced the mitigation work program in Glasgow, after that, um, you know, that was in, in November 2021, many of the developed countries said, we will not revise our NDCs. We will not revise our climate actions. We are going to stick to what we had already agreed to and which will go until 2030. So then why have a mitigation work program if the developed world was not going to increase uh, their targets? So that means what they were trying to do was to actually catch the major emitters. Mm -hmm. So that seemed to, to be the agenda. And uh, so it was really quite an unfair agenda. And they don't want to link the re responsibility of, of, of the world to finance. Like if you want the emission reductions of developed countries to increase, then the developing countries were saying, you have to also look at the raising of ambition on finance. Mm. Because how are we going to raise our, uh, our ambition on mitigation and do more emission reductions? if there is no commensurate finance on that. So that linkage um, cannot be broken. So this is how political and contentious, because at the end of the day, Juliet, and this I want to remind your readers, this is not an environmental negotiation. It's an economic um, negotiation. 
it's about trans the, the transformation of your economy to a much more uh, climate-friendly economy, which means you have to move away from fossil fuels. It means that you have to build more climate resilience. So it's an entire economic transformation. It's about how your GNP is going to be generated. But many of our politicians and, uh, and uh, the powers that be don't understand this. They think it's a climate matter. Let's leave it to the Ministry of Environment. They can take care of it. But it is not a Ministry of Environment's purview alone. It is really a very serious um, economic discussion. And so this is why it's very political and can be expected to be very political. Mm-hmm. I, I, we're just running out of time, Mina. But, you know, this is all, I mean, all of these talks were, you know, again, um, part of the pathway to the road to COP27, right? So what I'm getting from you is there is still a lot of work left to be done uh, before we can even set out like a clear vision of what can be actually achieved at COP27. Yes, I mean, it is um, the unity of developing countries is absolutely critical. Mm. I think that is the one takeaway that 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 we need to have. Um, and this is something uh, that's a message that I've always stressed as well. The more united we are together with a larger alliance, particularly with the G77 and China, they were very united on adaptation. They were united on loss and damage. They're united on the issue of finance not so united on the issue of mitigation. And that's something that we, that needs to continually be worked on. So the more united they are and the more strong they are, the easier it would be to actually um, go head on with the developed world. If we are weak and the developed world often, and I've said this before, will do divide and rule. They will say, okay, don't worry, small islands. Don't worry, least developed countries. We will give you some money. But let's go for the big emitters. They are the problem. Let's go for the middle-income countries like Malaysia. They are the problem. Let's go for Egypt, which is the middle-income country. So so this is the kind of politics they play. And so if we are not ready and we're not prepared, then um, we will lose more. Because at the end of the day, you developing countries will take on more and more obligations with no commensurate responsive uh, commitments of the developed world being met. And that is the danger. Okay. All right. Well, well, um, there's, I guess, a lot more to be done, Mina. But thank you so much, you know, for for giving us a brief sort of look into what went down over in Bonn. I do understand that, you know, the, the folks, you and the folks at uh, Third World Network, you know, you wrote many, many reports uh, based on, you know, the outcomes of this. And people can go to twn.my for, to read those reports in full. Am I correct? Yes, yes, totally. We give you... Um, a, a big picture account of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And it's very important uh, if, if you are interested in these issues to know the big political fights on this issue. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mina, uh, for joining me today. Anything you want to add before I wrap up? No. And thank you to BFM for, for um, playing up these issues um, because very important to keep our readers uh, abreast with what goes on on the climate talks because this is really an existential issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether we live or die, um, with the impending, you know, what we see, what we're already witnessing and seeing, um, everybody knows that the, the climate crisis is an emergency. And so I'm glad that you constantly pay attention to what's happening. And uh, the more that the public is aware, the more we can hold our own government and our own politicians accountable. I mean, our elections are coming and looming. So please, for God's sakes, ask your politicians or your adons or your member of parliament what they are going to do for climate change. And I think we need to start that way. So 
put where our, I mean, we have to show that the citizenry is actually one that is aware. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mina, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Minakshi Rahman, President of Sahaba Ala Malaysia and Head of Programs at the Third World Network. Again, if you'd like to find out more, uh, just head to twn.my. That's the Third World Network's uh, website. You can also check out uh, Sahaba Ala Malaysia's website. That's foe-malaysia.org. And if you miss any part of today's conversation or any of my previous conversations with Mina about these things, just head to bfm.my slash earth or you can find the podcast on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM. 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.